jump in with, uh, do you remember the very first class you had to teach? Uh, do I remember the very first class I had to teach? That's a very good question. I, uh, had is a, is also like very much like, do I need this? Um, you know what? I, before I taught classes, uh, I actually kind of coached and directed a, uh, the improv group that I was in that, um, was kind of falling apart. And the, uh, the director at the time kind of, uh, abdicated his responsibilities and I was just kind of tired of showing up and they're not I we would show up to rehearsal and there was no plan for anything and I kind of got tired of that and I went ahead and start putting together what I knew actually so the first first group that I was in uh I was in a group with Bill Binder who you know very well and uh yeah so we basically I I started just putting together rehearsals, I get some input from Bill. He actually had a lot more experience than I did at the time. Um, I mean, he still had, because he's like older than me and have been doing improv longer. So he will always have more improv experience than me. But uh, yeah, I like, I kind of jumped into it that way, just very much baptism by fire. Um, first starting with what I, you know, exercises and concepts that I knew and just as, uh, working with Bill and working with other workshop instructors that we'd uh, either bring in from out of town or that we encountered at festivals. That's kind of how I eventually started actually doing this work. So did you have, like, uh, in addition to Bill, anybody else who was kind of inspiring you that you were like, I'm going to sort of take on their voice for a while when you first started doing this? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, early on, I don't know that I had any concept of, like, uh, especially having a, a a voice as a teacher. Um, I think because I was so relatively new to it, um, I had just, like I seriously and literally had just started taking an improv class with this group. It was, I think, like a six or eight week session. I don't remember exactly. Uh, they asked me to join after that session. And then within a few months, that's when I was taking it. So I had no concept of like, oh, you know, each teacher has their own thing that they are bringing to this art form. Uh, Bill was definitely, uh, you know, an early influence, I would say. So one of the first people that we brought out to Phoenix, uh, that uh, actually Bill brought him out because they were friends from Michigan Tech University, was Chuck Charbonneau, who is now uh, working out of La Crosse, Wisconsin. And, uh, and so, and, and for years, uh, Chuck also worked in Detroit with, uh, I believe, Planet Ant Theater um, and, and some folks there. And, uh, yeah, he was just, uh, he was, he was really inspiring. I think, um, he definitely had the stance of improv being an art, uh, just no question about it. And he, you know, really was passionate about it and encouraged people to treat improv as an art, as, uh, as a means to say something about the world, yourself, our, uh, milieu within it, uh, all of that stuff. So, so Chuck Charbonneau uh, early on was uh, really, it, it was really wonderful to, um, to workshop with him and have him kind of as a role model. Um, I would say early on as well, um, folks like Susan Messing, Liz Allen, um, really early on, we went to uh, the Chicago Improv Festival and that's where we encountered Liz and Susan. Uh, also, I remember, I very much remember taking one of my first uh festival improv workshops with Joe Bill and Joe Bill, as you know, is just like an amazing, uh, human being performer and especially a teacher. Um, he just like is able to, you know, uh, <laughs> he's able to wrap his mind around complex concepts and make them uh, accessible to so many different levels of performers. And so I took his workshop. Um, I think this was like 2002, which is a billion years ago. And, I, I remember, like, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't until I worked with him again that I realized, like, oh, this is what he was going for. Um, and I, I got what I, uh, I got what I needed. What I, I mean, what I thought was fun and interesting and cool at the time. But then it just made so much more sense, um, you know, uh, looking back on on uh, on how I, how I had workshopped with him before. That first like those first teaching moments with your team and then you are part of the group though that started torch right yeah the um 
the improv group that Bill and I were in uh, with some other folks like John Yarmark, who is currently still performing with the Torch Theater. Basically, that, <laughs> you know, we rightly and uh, we just decided to quit the group all en masse with, uh, and, and left the director and his girlfriend slash ex-girlfriend because they would bring their personal arguments into, uh, into our rehearsals, which is totally fantastic. So, so it was one of those classic, uh, just like implosions where we all left and then almost instantly reformed. We became, uh, Galapagos, which also took on members from another, uh, group that had just, uh, kind of called it quits. And, uh, and yeah, we actually, uh, had been running, you know, as Galapagos for a few years and we even taught classes as Galapagos, myself and Bill, and, uh, but we, we met uh, a lot of people through the Phoenix Improv Festival. Um, we, were, uh, we were producers of the Phoenix Improv Festival and working with uh, a lot of, uh, what was really interesting is the Phoenix Improv Festival kind of was a magnet that kind of pulled in uh, the people who were interested, into Im- interested in improv and had either uh, you know, moved, in, uh, moved into Phoenix from out of town or they had been in Phoenix and went to Chicago for uh, the IO intensive. So we found a lot of like-minded people uh, kind of gravitating towards the Phoenix Improv Festival. And because we, you know, we were very like-minded and kind of all on the same page as far as the kind of improv we wanted to do. Uh, and we really did want to grow and nurture the improv scene beyond what it was, which was generally at the time, there was one main group that had been around for uh, they had been around in some form for about 10, maybe even 15 years. Um, but at this point, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of long form going on in town. And that's kind of what we wanted to see more of. So uh, we came together to form the Torch Theater. And uh, that's kind of we tried, tried as best we could to uh, hit the ground running. And so with that, you were teaching right away there, right? Uh, pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty quickly. Um we took, um, so Bill and I had come up with curriculum for what we taught in, uh, as, as Galapagos on our own before, before, uh, forming the Torch Theater with other folks. And I remember, uh, we, we actually had kind of like a four level layout of our curriculum. And I don't think we ever got past our second level because like the, our classes were so small. It's like, uh, you know, a lot of improv theaters, especially in, um, in some of the markets that aren't Chicago, New York, LA, uh, there's, you know, there, uh, there's a lot of scrappiness as far as getting, uh, you know, getting, uh, getting the word out about what you do and, uh, communicating why you think that people should, uh, should at least give it a try. And, uh, if that's the case now, it was like a million times scrappier than where we were, you know, it was handing out flyers, uh, trying to get people to show to shows so that we could, you know, tell them about classes. And so I think the the largest class we ever had as Galapagos was maybe six people, um, but we, know, we we built up to having a level one, a level two, and a few level ones and level twos after that, but just never uh, grew grew our student base because we were it was kind of like we were trying to do everything all at once. Do you, how much do you think your philosophy on teaching has changed from those early years to now? You know, it's definitely been impacted by, I, I know my personal uh, point of view on teaching has always been impacted, I guess, by those early years. Because I think, unlike a lot of folks, my improv training, uh, a lot of it comes from doing. Um, like I said, I started out um, with this fledgling improv group. And from, and, you know, I didn't do, uh, any kind of intensives. Uh, Bill was, <laughs> was driving out to IO West, um, on a weekly basis to take those classes. And I would, uh, occasionally join him, uh, just for the, for the trip and to catch, uh, various shows and whatnot. But I did, I never enrolled. So, uh, a lot of it was learned by doing, but I think, uh, yeah, the, I think the earliest, uh, my earliest, uh, improv teachers who I workshop with, like Joe Bill and Susan Messing and say Liz Allen, uh, probably has still impact me today. I think what's what's become different is I think getting better at reaching different type of learners. Uh, it, because yeah, because I think 
uh, you know, and this just comes with experience. At first, I think when you're teaching people for the first few years, really, like, I, I feel like back then I had, like, here's the stuff that I want to teach and just not necessarily robotically, but it's like, here it is. And I'm telling you exactly as I have it in my head and kind of hoping that you will grasp these concepts. I think nowadays I'm a lot more um, versatile in being able to explain certain concepts or, you know, get people to reach beyond what they think that they can do. What did you do um, for yourself? What And what do you still do for yourself then to grow as a teacher? Because you had such... I mean, you're essentially, like you said, just on the job training. At this point, you don't you don't have the luxury of like getting to be part of like a train the trainer program or anything like that. So right. So what are you what are you doing then, and what are you doing now to like make sure that your teaching skills are growing? So I think uh, one of the things about uh, like learning improv in the early two thousands, early to mid two thousands. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot online, but there were kind of hubs between Improv Resource Center and uh, yesand.com and, and a few um, message boards based in Chicago. And I just really tried to, like, I would read and absorb as much as I could, have interactions. Um, like, I would sometimes message and email people. I'm, like, uh, <laughs> very grateful to people like Craig Kakowski who would, like, receive an email from this random person that I like there, I think I met him maybe once or twice in a, uh, in a workshop that he taught and I just had a billion questions and he was nice enough to allow this improv nerd from Phoenix to, uh, to ask all these very, um, you know, a, a lot of questions that were based off of stuff that I read, stuff that I had, uh, come across on, online. Uh, I basically absorbed as many, uh, improv books as possible and I think, and, uh, you know, when I could, I took workshops. Um, we had many years when we were doing anywhere between three and six uh, festivals a year. And, and for me, those were, it, it was awesome to perform. It was great to meet people. But those were also prime opportunities to take workshops and have access to teachers that, uh, that we normally wouldn't. And so, I mean, that's something that I still do today. Um, I've been performing now for, it'll be 16 years in the fall, and I still love taking workshops from just a wide variety of people to uh, to keep, both keep sharp and also to always, like, one of the things that I'm really adamant about is that, you know, as long as, in my, the way that I see things, like, we're always learning, we're always students of this art form, um, there is no ceiling to this. So, for me, it's really important to get different perspectives uh, even even on you know certain things that I may not necessarily jive with initially, but uh, but it's just good to stretch out of your own comfort zone because it, you know I think people it, people are really prone to get comfortable with how they work on stage, and I definitely don't want to be that kind of person. Um, it's totally fine, you know. People people are going to do the work that uh, they want to do, and I hope they they are doing it. But for me, um, just always always growing and always finding a way to uh, grow and evolve what I'm teaching is important because I, I think, you know, improv is a living art form. I also know the people you're talking about and you see them in one place, you're like, they're amazing. And then you take them out of their comfort zone and you're like, oh, well, look what just happened, <laughs> right? And, and my, right. And my fear, I have this fear of being that person. So I also do what I can to not be that person. <laughs> One of my, you know, one of my personal goals is to be able to play on stage with anybody of any experience level, with any kind of particular background or philosophy or school of thought. You know, I, I think it's really easy to learn improv one way and then get locked into thinking like, oh, this is, uh, you know, I think most people are, you know, self-aware enough to not think like, oh, the way I do this is the one and only correct way. But it's really easy to only work with like the people you know who have the same you know are on the same page as how you how you personally might approach a scene. No, I, they're not. They're technically not students anymore because of the way our program was set up. We could, but I still look at them as students because they were all my students and they're all still under like two years. Um, and I hear a lot of times, and it's fear and ego, 
but talking about like, oh, don't mix our teams or whatnot because then the dynamics shift and this and that. And I'm like, ooh, that's not that's not we got to change that way you think. Like, I appreciate you want group mind, and I appreciate you want to work with the same group so that you develop a really cohesive team and show, etc. But I also want you to be of the mindset that I want to get so good that I can get on the stage with anybody at any time. I try to do that by modeling that also. Hopefully, hopefully I am. Who knows? Yeah, it, well, it's funny. I think there's something to be said for, you know, a team or group and having a group, uh, a group chemistry, obviously a group mind, but also kind of a group outlook on how they approach this work and the shows that they want to do. But that also doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, that that shouldn't necessarily prevent them from, you know, mixing it up from time to time in some way. Um, so are you currently teaching? Yeah, I'm teaching here at the Torch Theater. Um, I also have taught and will be teaching at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, just uh, a uh, kind of a standalone eight-week course that's it's a little analogous to an intro to improv class but with uh added emphasis uh, especially at the beginning um uh an added emphasis on personal narratives and using that as a vehicle uh to introduce improvisation concepts did you develop that curriculum uh yeah for that class i did um and because yeah i think um you know i I've taught all of uh, I've taught all of the levels here at the Torch Theater. Uh, we have six levels, and I both wanted to uh, make this class that I was teaching uh, an entirely different setting that has kind of an entirely different um, set of people that they reach. And I wanted to make sure that it was different enough experience from what they might find here at the Torch or even any other. Uh, kind of level one class that might be around town. So that was uh, definitely something that I kind of, uh, that I put together based off of my experiences, various exercises I've developed that, that I've developed. And uh, yeah. So when you developed this, did you, um, I, a few questions were one, um, the objective in mind, was that something you had discussed with the museum first so that you could um, sort of then go ahead and sort of develop that? Or did, or did you already have like a vision of, what you wanted this to be? Um, mostly they brought me in and they were interested in having improv in some way as part of what they do there. Even uh, at this point, uh, I taught the class last fall. I'll be teaching all my class this year there. starts at the end of summer. Uh, so it's not, you know, it's not every uh, eight weeks or anything. Um, but when, when I talked to them, uh, they brought me in, they were interested in having improv in some form. And, uh, so Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, which, uh, they is commonly called Smoka around here. Um, they have had a series of shows there, um, that were more personal narrative and literature based where, uh, where various, lecturers and storytellers uh would come in and perform and kind of uh, like it's hard to really explain um my brain's a little fuzzy right now but um yeah they had kind of a more personal narrative background there in terms of the performances that they that they hosted and they you know to be honest they didn't host a whole lot of those uh performances but i was really aware of kind of uh, their their background and what they had hosted before. And I, I felt uh, pretty strongly at, at kind of giving it this slant uh, based on personal narrative uh, in line with what had been featured there before. So um, while they were really great and kind of gave me uh, carte blanche to do whatever I wanted, I did, uh, once I talked to them, I envisioned something that was in line with the kind of performances that I saw there and that seemed to fit and mesh well with what they do. Okay. When you, when you build out curriculums, um, do you, 
do a lot of like rubrics and metrics uh, and objectives? Are they in the type of curriculum where someone else could pick it up and be like, I got it? Or are they more based for like, I just kind of need to keep this intact for my mind as I go through my curriculum? Uh, generally, I kind of have a general template for, for classes that I teach just, uh, you know, on a class to class basis. Um, but overall, I do put together, uh, I mean, what helps me put together, especially like this class that I basically put together from scratch um, that, it was, that I was teaching outside of the Torch Theater, um, it was very much uh, mapping out what I wanted them to achieve overall and the step-by-steps, uh, the step-by-step each week uh, of what they need, would need to work on and uh, kind of explore and strengthen over over those few weeks to kind of build up to what we were ultimately working towards, which was um, essentially a kind of a long form based in uh, in personal narratives and conversations. Um, it doesn't, like I think on paper or in performance, it doesn't look that different from Armando, but the approach was getting people uh, more familiar with uh, trusting themselves to have... Uh, have experiences that they can share and that would be interesting and that could fuel interesting improv. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I think the uh, so overall the the building out that curriculum for that class, uh, it, I don't know that I would say it had like a, a really formal rubric, um, but it was uh, each week was definitely had objectives um, that part that in particular. Um, helped in the pursuit of the overall goal of what that class was about. Did you have, do you feel you had to change your approach at all then when you're teaching a group like that? I definitely, uh, I think, uh, maybe it's just force of habit in, in the torch theater. I'm, I'm a little bit looser cause I can, I, not that I can, not that anybody would tell me not to, but I can curse. I can, <laughs> you know, I can, right. uh, yep. Yep. I can kind of, um, I, and I think in our, uh, level so we have a six level program I think in levels uh, level three and up I can be a little bit more direct with the uh, with the feedback and the notes that I give performers because they've uh, they've kind of built up uh, like their own expectations of of how what we do uh, how what we do here and how we approach it how they're going to receive notes in line with that and I think uh, kind of, approaching this class with a lot of people who are totally new, not only to uh, performing, but even just the idea of improv. Um, there had, there, you know, there was definitely uh, just like, I think almost in any level one, a, a need to kind of be a little bit more gentle and kind of like more uh, softly on board people into some of the ideas and concepts yeah. that we were working on. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and probably a lot less F-bombs for sure. <laughs> right. I, know, I find when I, I leave my own space also, unless I'm going into like another theater where I know that's their MO or if it's like a, yeah. like a bunch of like improv festivals, it's improvisers, mm-hmm. right? I, w- I do. I, I watch my language. <laughs> I start to watch my language. It's such a funny thing to me. Um, so yeah, yeah, and it's the you know the language. It's never meant to like. It's just like if I get really excited about it, uh, especially like you know. I think one of the the amazing and great things about teaching improv is like seeing uh, you know from time to time it happens where someone does something on stage that you've never seen anybody do before. Like even even, uh, you know, seasoned improvisers. And, you know, sometimes uh, it's like, oh, I've never seen that before on stage at all, much less totally, uh, you know, improvisers who are learning all of this for the first time. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to yelp out an expletive every once in a while, at least, uh, just just in a, you know, momentary joyous celebration of that. And I really do try to let them know when those moments happen because, uh, you know, it, it's one thing to tell people to, you know, a lot of people, it's a, such a cliche to think outside of the box, but like, it's so rare that it actually happens and that it even happens, um, in some cases, uh, quote unquote, accidentally, right? Because everything that happens on stage, whether, you know, in line exactly with its intentions or not is a gift to what's going on. So yeah, it's just, I really try to pass on that enthusiasm and sometimes uh, that means curse words. Now, uh, with Torch, do you guys, um, what is your current 
because I, I, I'm sure I talked about this with Bill. I just can't remember. Um, monitoring students' progress. Are you guys, um, do you guys just have like, we need to make sure that they're hitting these goals. Also just knowing that like you guys over there are a little bit math nerdy. Um, right? <laughs> so do you guys have like a like strict metrics in place or is it more like we just want to make sure they're hitting these as we go to pass them on from class to class? So when we when we started um, when we started the Torch Theater, we really looked at the curriculum. Um, a lot of it was adopted and adapted from what we were working with um, as Galapagos, um, because it was pretty much in line with what the Torch Theater wanted to teach, anyways. And we started out as a four level uh, training program, um, and and we adapted that to a six-level training program after a few years because we realized that, uh, so our level one initially was, you know, uh, and we tried not to necessarily call it an intro to improv class, and we tried to use the designation of a beginning long-form improv scene work class, and while that gets a little bit wordy, the idea was to, uh, to reach and, uh, to reach and cultivate the students that wanted this um wanted an improv experience in line with uh some of the shows that they would see us do so uh so we were starting um there was very little in terms of uh you know there there are exercises that are exercises as well as short form games um uh which is uh you know which is the roots of improv in general um but a lot of our curriculum is based and directed towards like imp- like long form improv performance. And I, I think some, you know, there might be um, some difference of opinion on, on when you're starting a, say a, a beginning improv class, but that's kind of where we started there. And the idea actually because of where we were here in Phoenix, which um, a lot of the people who might uh, be involved in theater and performance around town and may have dabbled with improv, they might have an interest, but they also might end up moving to Los Angeles, uh, to, which is, you know, only six hours away. And, uh, and that becomes one of their options. Um, but because we were trying to grow an improv scene here, I think we lean towards trying to get people, uh, into classes and on stage as soon as we could. And so our level one was this beginning long form improv class and our level two was straight up Harold. And <laughs> that was, uh, you know, there were some really great and fun students who went through that and did fine, but there's so much, you know, there's so much to, uh, teach about Harold or any kind, any, uh, foundational long form improv work, uh, that just throwing people into, uh, long form, uh, like full on long form concepts, um, that move past the introductory level, uh, of what long form is, uh, that was a lot. So we, uh, we ended up essentially splitting up part, like it was a mix of taking some of level one and, and our then level two, which was Harold and really building out a, a curriculum for that class based in ensemble work. So as to bridge, uh, the gap between what you learn in the first eight weeks of this training prog- program and uh, bridging that to uh, the work that you're going to do working as an ensemble, um, performing Harold, and really looking at Harold as not only a long-form structure, but, um, you know, a philosophy of long-form improv. A, a, because I, I think that, um, you know, Harold itself, like, it, it, there are a lot of built-in concepts that, uh, you know, have laid down the foundation for what long-form is. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously there's been a lot of development along the way as far as how long form has, uh, has grown. Um, but all of the roots are there for us. Uh, so you guys also get, um, evaluations on the class and on yourselves then as teachers, right? Yes, we do. Okay. Do, do you, have you ever gotten evaluation back where you, it threw you off guard? Yeah, uh, not maybe every once in a while. I I think that uh, so I think one of the things that I do have to work on and kind of keep in check because uh, I can definitely digress. Uh, <laughs> you know, in the middle of a um, talking about concepts and really getting 
getting deep into maybe some some improv history that people don't really need to know uh, to function on stage and to do good work. Um, you know, it's, that may be a little bit more uh, trivia than than actual help, help. You know, helpful to what people might do on stage. Um, but I do try to keep that in check uh, because my mind is all over the place, anyways. Um, what I've received, uh, so when I've, when I've gotten, you know, feedback that like, you know, he kind of wanders or rambles occasionally. I'm like, yep, that would, that's definitely me. I was in that class. I taught that class. Um, I think the, um, every once in a while, there's just something that like, seems like it's the opposite. It's like the exact opposite of something that you clearly covered or (laughs) discussed. Um, we, we try to, each teacher tries to uh, give their class resources that they can go to, um, whether it's books, online videos, blogs, podcasts, um, so that they have some sense of like, oh, I can, you know, I'm in class for these three hours per week, but that doesn't mean I just shut off my improv brain for uh, until like uh, a week later. Um, and I think I got... Uh, feedback that said that I never ever talked about that and that uh, that they felt a little bit lost because they were only working on improv while in class. I feel like they weren't in your class then. I, yeah, I don't know where they were. I want to, I'm going to skip around a bit and we'll come back to some other like uh, classroom, classroom kind of things. But so there's sort of this a conversation about like, is there a real thing as a difficult student or is it the teacher failing to meet the needs of the students. So, um, so do you do you define students from time to time as being difficult, or do you find that you put that on your own shoulders as a teacher? I think initially, I will like any kind of difficulties that seem to pop up. I, my first instinct is to try to look at what I'm doing and maybe what I'm not communicating well to them. Um, I think uh, one thing that I very much learned from Joe Bill, and I believe, like, I'm, like, I don't think he ever said this in a workshop I was in, but like, uh, I believe I read it in an interview that was like on some improv blog, uh, you know, some ten years ago. But he mentioned that like, uh, you know, whatever the team does well, uh, and you can that could be class or team, um, that's ninety percent their work and ten percent the work that he's put into helping them along the way. Whereas like the things that this team or class fails to do um, or fails to do well or with any sense of cohesiveness and and the kind of like, you know, uh, strong choices and support that you might expect from uh, a class that you're teaching, that that's uh, 90% the teacher and 10% the class. So, um, so early on I was definitely taught, I felt like it was my responsibility to look first at, like you know, what are what are the what are the ways that I could possibly uh, be failing before necessarily pushing it onto the student and uh, and tagging them as a difficult student? Uh, that said, there are I mean I do think that there are some difficult students, uh, but I think that a lot of that is sometimes even despite your best efforts to communicate what. Uh, what your theater is about and what your uh, what improv is about to certain people, they have it in their head like uh, you know formed into stone that uh, that this is the one this is the way that they're going to approach it. And I think um, for those folks, I think you can have a conversation with them and make sure like you know you see the kind of shows that we have on our stage, you see the kind of work that we are having our students do in classes. Uh, or is this really in line with what you really want to do? You know, there are some people who, um, and, and I have, I think, uh, doing stand-up is great. I think doing uh, other forms of comedy, sketches, however people approach it. Um, but I think sometimes people jump into improv classes thinking like, oh, this will give me some of the stuff I need to tackle those other things. And there are certainly certain concepts uh, and, and getting comfortable with performing in front of people that can that improv can help out with but sometimes just the approach for what they think is funny or interesting isn't necessarily in line with working with other people have you ever had to ask someone to leave your class 
not that I can remember. I know that it's come up for our for other teachers here at the Torch Theater, and mostly it's been really. I, I believe it was like in the first uh, first few years um, because we were a very much a fledgling improv theater company, and I think what we've done since then is laid out um, laid out our expectations for. Uh, the kind of conduct that is acceptable in classes, from having a student handbook to, uh, re, you know, uh, talking in the very first class on in terms of uh, what we expect from students and what we will, you know, ultimately call out if we see it on stage. If uh, so, as to prevent those weird moments where uh, I think someone early on in a class that someone else in the course was teaching, there was someone who suddenly grab someone by like near the neck, not, not exactly grabbing their neck. And I might be remembering this entirely wrong. Uh, and you know, that person had to be like immediate, like, you know, they, the scene was stopped, uh, so as to address that immediately. And I think that we definitely do a lot more now to, uh, to have those conversations proactively. So it doesn't get to that point. Right. Yeah. And sometimes you have them and you still don't see them coming and they come. So, right. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it's funny because early on in early on when we formed the the torch in the first, uh, I would say for the first three years, which is when we were teaching, um, like we, there's another theater in town by the name of space 55 theater that, and and they're wonderful in, in downtown Phoenix. And they were essentially our, uh, temporary home, and they focus on scripted works and, you know, uh, kind of scripted, uh, comedic, late-night talk shows, that kind of stuff. They're, they're just such a great part of this community. And so we were teaching out of there. We were occasionally teaching classes at the local library because that was, like, one of the few spaces that we could have unencumbered by anybody else's schedule. And um, in those early years, occasionally, and I think it was, you know, so many people think of improv as like, oh man, I can, I can do anything I want. It's like, I can do and say anything I want. And, and, uh, either that was the case or they come into improv, not knowing what to expect and the level of support and acceptance, not only of what happens on, uh, on stage, but ultimately of like people, right. That, that like, you know, we're all, you know, we're all imperfect in some ways, uh, but there are still a lot of great qualities that we might have. And so I think that they would feel uh, kind of an appreciation for that, appreciation for who they were, um, that maybe who they were didn't necessarily fit into other contexts that they had tried to get into socially. And so they kind of, like, sometimes <laughs> there were people who was like, oh, you need, like, some of the stuff that you are starting to delve into and explore in class that is something to talk about with someone who is a therapist and is certified and educated and trained how to deal with some of that stuff. Whereas, uh, you know, cause it's like, uh, improv can really be fun and even, and therapeutic, but it's definitely not a substitute for therapy. Um, and I think early on, like, uh, for whatever reason, we, <laughs> like we had, uh, it wasn't overwhelming at all, but we had those, couple students every six months, maybe a few times a year who we had to kind of have a conversation with and make sure like, you know, be sure to take care of yourself first, just your average everyday daily life before, you know, really jumping into improv or, or expecting that improv was going to solve some of the challenges that you had off stage. Let's talk about diversity for a little bit. It's, you know, it's finally like, I feel like we're finally, and maybe in Phoenix it was always this way because I just I don't know the demographic enough, but like we're finally having the conversations that like we haven't been diverse enough, right? So now, so now we're working harder. I feel as a community, as a whole community. Um, have you found uh, anything difficult for yourself? And then, well, let's answer that question first. In terms of being, because uh, I'm uh, technically Mexican American, Latino. Um, yeah, it's funny. Have I found anything uh, challenging or difficult? When I put when I put this list together, I was like, "Well, shit, everybody's white, and that's 
as teachers. And I'm like, that's so boring, right? Like, what the hell? So, um, so yeah. So how's that been for you? Um, I mean, and maybe because of where you are and stuff that actually hasn't been an issue. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think for me personally, it's never generally been an issue. I think, uh, you know, growing up, I went, so I primarily went to public schools up until high school, which I'll explain in a moment. But my, the schools that I went to growing up were, uh, primarily, primarily Latino and Latina, um, mostly, uh, you know, Mexican American in origin. And, and so despite that, you know, I, you know, TV and film was primarily white and, uh, you know, I loved SNL. Actually, they're like, I'm just looking back, I think it's funny that a bunch of brown kids uh, would, on our way to school on Monday morning, talk about what we saw on Saturday Night Live, um, whether it was like Toons is the Cat or uh, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy or like especially like a lot of the really absurd, uh, you know, the absurd sketches that took place in the last half hour. Like those were what we really loved. And so, yeah, in a way, it's, you know, I, it, necess- it didn't necessarily feel like exclusion, uh, but I, it wasn't until later that I was aware, like, oh, yeah, I, like, most of those people were white. And I think, um, you know, it was, inter- like, knowing that Horatio Sands, like, joined, the, when he joined the cast, it was like, oh, there's, there's someone whose name is, like, indicates that he's Latino, you know, it, that was... Uh, you know, that was definitely, I, like, Horatio is a really great, amazing performer, um, but it was, and, but I, you know, he does what he does. I don't necessarily uh, perform like he does uh, at all, but it was nice to see him in the mix and coming from a different background and bringing a different uh, flavor to what SNL had to offer. Um, and, and likewise, you know, having shows like In Living Color, uh, John Le- oh, actually, John Leguizamo, um, like seeing his uh, local NBC affiliate here after Saturday Night Live, which was, was done, there'd be like a half hour like infomercial or something. And then there would be a, an edited version of an HBO special. Sometimes it was George Carlin, but one, you know, a one random weekend, it was uh, John Leguizamo's one man show, which was... Now I'm not, I'm going to remember it later, but, um, but yeah, seeing a Latino on stage, uh, being comedic and performing, not just doing, not doing standup, but like performing characters on stage. Um, like that was, that totally was like, oh wow, there's someone who, uh, like now I realize, oh man, I think he's, I think John Leguizamo is like 50, like he's. And, but like, I mean, he still looks like he's 25, but, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting because I associated him with me just by virtue of like, oh, he looks like me or people I know. Um, so yeah, I think I never felt actively excluded. Um, and then, and then when I, uh, I went to, uh, I got a scholarship, uh, and did work study at a, uh, a Catholic prep school and, that that experience was primarily uh, being around um, students that were primarily white and from middle to upper class, if not totally super rich uh, backgrounds. And uh, and so I think I definitely had a way of navigating that that I that I kind of refined in high school, um, where where I did not find it necessarily. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it wasn't. It, I was used to it. So, so jumping into improv, it was not necessarily like totally jolting to, um, you know, especially in my early experiences uh, going to Chicago Improv Fest, Festival, realizing like, oh, everybody in this class is white, or maybe there was one uh, one black dude um, in the class, and and so yeah, for me personally, it wasn't necessarily like it didn't feel like a like a mountain to overcome. But I think looking back, you, you know, we definitely see, uh, see more diverse people passing through the classes, you know, for, and, and that's definitely a good thing. Right. Uh, and so when, when those topics do come up on stage in the classroom, um, 
how, like, how are you guys, how are you personally facilitating that conversation? Because I think a lot of times they come up, uh, uh, not because someone's malicious, but because we're now learning this new art form and things bubble up and there's no script. And all of a sudden we've said something and we're like, wow, I didn't know that was inside me. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you know, people, people are improvising. I think a lot of what we do as improv teachers is we're, in a lot of ways, we're teaching people how to face certain fears. And when, you know, people are in a classroom situation and we're really asking them to take, uh, take risks and to be fearless, uh, occasionally, like, they, they are going to, they might be at a loss, uh, a loss for words or a loss of what to do next, and they might blurt something out. I think in those cases, you, you know, you kind of have to, I don't know if you, really depending on what words they use and what they choose to to put on stage um within these walls people are students people are are learning people are making mistakes they're gonna hopefully learn from their mistakes and we can address things in terms of of you know being a student and growing and learning um but like i do try to uh proactively uh well us as, as a theater we do try to proactively um address some of these issues in terms of our student uh, handbook and our code of conduct. But uh, personally, like the first day of class, I talk about uh, those issues of portraying, uh, portraying characters other than yourself. And, and also like having a responsibility as an artist, uh, because I think personally, I believe that you can do and say almost anything on stage, but you just have to be willing to own it and not, uh, not shift and not shift responsibility to, uh, you know, to other, to don't shift the blame to other people as like, Oh, well, you're just being, uh, overly sensitive and you're, uh, you're being overly sensitive and this is not a big deal. And, you know, you know, uh, trying to justify it as this is just, uh, this is just comedic or funny. It was meant to be that way and you should take it that way. Right. Um, so we, so I will address the fact that, like, you know, what we focus on in improv, or at least uh, the improv that we're exploring, we're looking at behavior between human beings, you know, uh, being played by characters. So just, you know, uh, uh, Butch Roy from uh, Huge Theater in Minneapolis, who's a great dude, um, he, he had a great phrase for it that, uh, you know, people aren't punchlines. Um, the things that make people... Uh, Diverse, whether it's their uh, sexual orientation or the gender they identify with or their uh, race or nationality or any kind of background, their age, uh, you know, their, uh, if they have, uh, if they experience any kind of uh, mobility issues, whatever, whatever those things are that seem to not necessarily be represented in the mainstream, those aren't, those are just, you know, traits that people have. A, they're not defined by them, and also, like those, like there's nothing necessarily inherently funny about those things. It's like the behavior that comes from these character interactions. So, uh, I try to put that forth uh, first day of class so that people understand that. Like, uh, I, I think, and I'll use, uh, I won't use an example. <laughs> I was about to use an example that's specific to. Um, actually, you know what? I will because I think it's worth mentioning in in Phoenix here and in. I think Arizona in general, there is, um, I think we do have a higher concentration of uh, folks who are in the Church of Latter-day Saints. And so it's like, I think uh, Mormon jokes are a common thing that either local comedians uh, might lean on or, you know, because it's like, they're, for the most part, I've encountered nothing but lovely people who happen to be Mormon. Um, but there's, I don't know, there's a, like occasionally... I think they get mentioned in an improv scene, like in a class, and it's like, oh, like that's not, like that's not really funny on its own that you mentioned that this person is Mormon, right? Um, and I think that's a really specific thing to, to Phoenix and maybe Arizona, but it's like there's nothing, you know, there's nothing inherently funny by the fact in terms of the fact that someone is Mormon. Do you have any advice um, for someone who's wanting to be a coach or be a teacher? Yeah, my advice would be to to start small. I think uh, you know. I think uh, one of the one of the things that I really 
uh, took to heart from um, McNapier is letting go of the pressure to know everything uh, and to be able to explain everything. Because, uh, you know, we as human beings, we don't have the answers all the time anyways. And it, it comes off as really disingenuous uh, when a scene kind of maybe falls flat uh, or a student has a question that you don't know the answer to. And it, it comes off really inauthentic when people try, as teachers or coaches, try to like talk themselves into giving you the solution or talk themselves into an answer that sounds helpful but is probably more just rambling um, than anything else. Uh, so let's talk about Scene Blast. Sure. Uh, scene Blast is a style or format of uh, improv workshop that uh, utilizes three to four uh, teachers or, co- or coaches at the same time. Um, basically, the idea was to have just a constant stream of improv scenes and having a uh, one of the three or four coaches uh, would call scene, and that's the coach who will uh, give notes to those two people. Meanwhile, those people step off stage and an entirely new improv scene with two other people starts. So the idea is that while... Uh, while one, uh, you know, one pair of people who just came off stage are getting um, uh, really quick notes, uh, and we focus on basically like the most actionable notes uh, that uh, the most actionable thing that you can do, say for your next scene. And while that's happening, uh, there's already a scene happening on stage that uh, the remaining coaches in the workshop can be watching and then call scene on. And part of the part of the impetus, we've been doing this workshop now for almost, I think, three and a half years, um, maybe even four. But it originally um, was an idea that I had. <laughs> one time, Bill and I were at a, a festival, and it was like one of those ones that, like, oh, we definitely we're shoestringing it for sure. Like, basically, barely, like, uh, only, you know, had enough to to pay for our. Uh, travel there and maybe we were crashing with someone and like you know uh, maybe 20 bucks for the rest of the weekend there and so it was kind of a bummer because we as we were performing but we also uh, wanted to take some workshops and just you know we just had to uh, I mean we we made our own fun and, and hung 